0: Welcome back to the Be A Better Ally podcast. My name is Trisha Friedman. My pronouns are she and her, and I am thrilled to be back. Uh, We took a few weeks off from the podcast. Um, Hopefully you noticed. And this week we are back with an early years educator. Um, And I'm really excited for this conversation because I often think early years educators have so much to teach us about, um, you know, really making space for authentic and honest and meaningful conversations and being really intentional when we're talking about the skills that we need in order to make our schools more LGBTQ plus inclusive. So I hope you enjoy the show. Um, Links that are discussed on the episode you will be able to find over in the show notes. Enjoy.
1: Hi, everyone. My name is Chelsea. I'm an early years education teacher at Brandenburg, uh, Berlin Brandenburg International School, and I identify as a bisexual woman.
0: Chelsea, thank you so much. Uh, Chelsea's also a return guest, sort of like, a, I guess, a friend to the show, maybe I will say. (laughs) So um, if you're a regular listener, you might recognize her voice. Uh, Most recently, she joined us for a panel. Uh, We got together just before kind of the launch of the academic year to talk a little bit about, you know, just some of our aspirations, some of our thinking about going into the year, sustaining our energy as advocates and allies, And so it's interesting now that it's October um, to kind of touch base with you on some of that. Uh, So Chelsea, you're you're in early years education and I'm wondering if you might want to talk a little bit about what might be unique to your role as it applies to LGBTQ plus inclusion.
1: Yes, awesome. Um, As teachers of young learners, we know that it is necessary to create welcoming environments um, that represent and both support diversity among families, Um, and the children in our care. So I feel that my role contributes to the LGBTQ plus inclusion by being a part of pursuing constructive anti-bias learning. So the aim is to teach children to be proud of themselves first and foremost, and to be proud of their families. Just having, yeah, just in the very notion that having pride in ourselves and others makes children more grounded, um, helps them be more tolerant and more understanding. Um, And this is not only connected to individual students and their families, but I also feel that a school is first and foremost, a social community. So it is also part of our role to create a space where families are engaged with one another and are encouraged alongside their children to learn about each other and to harness respect for all the different types of folks um, that share this space with their children. And also to work with all the staff to make sure that space is warm and inviting. Um, Another part of my role as an educator um, doesn't just extend to children and families, but also as a staff member. So currently, I feel grateful to be in a school community where I am safe and able to be out. However, that does not always mean um, it is comfortable or respected. And a unique part of working um, there is that I get to have trusted colleagues Um, in which we can help each other with our own self-reflection and we can work together to continue to build strong inclusion policies in which we may or may not have to question our leadership, which is somewhat challenging. And, um, you know, this can cause a great deal of emotional labor, but part of being active in action, right, also depends on my capacity level (laughs) at the time of the year and how much I have for that, um, is also to be an advocate for fellow staff to join on as allies, right? I shouldn't, you know, part of incorporating inclusion work isn't just the role, right, or the duty of queer teachers to have to carry that all the time, right? As well as, you know, there is a ripple effect, not just in student learning, but that a school community also houses other folks than just teachers, right? There are staff in admin, um, maintenance staff, office staff, security, all these wonderful people that make our days, you know, safe and friendly? And are we also making sure that we're representing all the diversity of those staff members and we should also give them a chance as part of a larger school community to have them be exposed if otherwise.
0: I'm really glad that you that you brought up that community piece. You know, in my mind, it's sort of one of the most important aspects um, in the work that I do with schools, sometimes a misstep that I see is you know like one person decides like I am going to be you know this is all on my shoulders I am going to be the leader of this and I always find that doesn't work. A, it's not sustainable, and I I just kind of believe you know if you're trying to do something for the community, it has to be with the community. Um, and I you know I'm, I'm married to an educator who has worked in EY, and that's been for me always working in middle and high school. It's been a really great opportunity because. Having conversations with my wife made me realize, you know, when you work in EY, we talk a lot, I think, in the upper grades about the idea of like having open, vulnerable discussion. And Chelsea, yeah. tell me if I'm getting this wrong, but I sort of feel like if you're in the EY, that's not necessarily a choice. Like that's the default. It is going to be like <laughs> we're going to say what we think. Right. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of wondering because you mentioned you know, your, your staff is doing a good job of sort of, you know, let's, let's come together around this. And I'm just wondering if anybody else has sort of asked you a little bit about what it, you know, what lessons they can take from you in terms of having those conversations with your students, because, um, you know, again, I, I feel like children at that age have almost not, uh, you know, been taught, to uh, judge their thoughts, they you know they they're kind of coming from that place of this is what I think I'm going to share it. You know I almost I worry sometimes that schools um, push that out of out of youngsters, and I'm just sort of wondering if um, you're having conversations with other educators about the way in which you go about facilitating dialogue. Um, I, I just I always think like the EY has so many lessons to teach the rest of the school and. I'm curious to know, like, are are folks taking you up on that opportunity?
1: I think this um, is a bit layered, right? Even just understanding the sheer different types of varieties of queerness and how that is also first and foremost respected, right? So I, as a bisexual woman, oftentimes in society is not recognized as a queer person or that I'm not queer enough. And so I think that definitely has its own effect on how my colleagues view me as a someone who has something to say <laughs> about this topic, especially if, I, if a colleague knows that my partner is a man, then it's super straight passing and what do I know? Um, so I think that's a bit tricky to answer straight forward like that. Um, So, and also depending on what each staff member's journey is with their own openness or identity exploration, there's a few different um, situations that have happened, right? So let's start with most challenging to positive. Some of the challenging ones have been, I accept all people. And so just through my teaching of accepting all people, I don't understand why I need to be direct about this. Do children need to learn about sexuality? Right. And so that's a bit challenging because, yes, you want to honor that your colleague is open minded. And of course, they have a classroom community full of, you know, love and harmony. Um, but teaching about um, LGBTQ plus inclusion does not mean to be talking about a young child's direct sexual orientation, right? That's also inappropriate at this age to be trying to match them sexually. Um, but they have families and they will also have different types of families and they will encounter and meet friends of different types of families or maybe encounter teachers and other adults who have different gender representation that they are traditionally used to, right? So this is the kind of counter to that and that is a process. So that's one challenging um, conversation that starts with dialogue. Another part of one I have is a teacher uh, has a friend that is queer, or they've had a family member that is queer, and they feel they want to learn more, so they would ask for resources. So that's always a great middle round of saying, yes, okay, so you have questions, you're not sure where to start, well, let's start with people, you know, represent who are doing representation in literature. And then the third one, which is great and sad at the same time, is that then some teachers have come up to me and said, I identify as X, Y, and Z. I do not feel ready to come out yet. From my home culture, it is not safe for me to come out yet. I'm already this age in life. I don't feel that I can come out. And so this inclusion piece brings up a lot of personal turmoil for teachers who want to do good and want to use their own personal lived experiences for learning experiences. But it becomes a, you know, this outing yourself piece kind of challenges that. So where do I come into? How do I help that? Sometimes I feel
0: right now I've just been a sounding board, and that's okay if that's where we need to start. Yeah, and that that listening piece is of course really crucial. And I sometimes wonder, you know, what are schools doing to support all the learners on campus in terms of really just understanding how best to be a listener? Um, because I, I kind of think in terms of skills when we're talking about allyship. Um, I don't know. Sometimes I, I kind of, I, I just wonder what foundation are we building with that skill set? Because it's so important.
1: I came into this school that already has an established GSA and that has been there for a long time. And then the, you know, Christina has been on the podcast a few times and there are other teachers at school who are also doing this work. So I also want to shout out that it's not just me that, you know, is single-handedly doing this. I already came in to a somewhat formulated community that is pursuing this. And that has also been helpful for me to ask for their advice or for their experiences
0: because they've already done a lot of groundwork. Yeah. And and let me ask about that because I know sometimes when we come into a new school, some of it is like, I am just sensing, like I can feel Mm -hmm. how safe, inclusive, welcoming this space is going to be sometimes there actually might be documentation. I feel like schools are looking at doing a better job of that actually you know, having some evidence to kind of show like we, we mean it. And this is the story of our school that we wanna tell. And I'm wondering when you joined the school, um, you, know, you say that that groundwork was done. How did you come to understand that? Because I know that um, this is sort of the season where some teachers are thinking, do I stay or do I go? Um, and I think that's always kind of a tricky one is making sure that, um, you know, we're looking for a home, a school that I love that you pointed out earlier, you know, it should be beyond safety, right? Like they're safe, but then there's also comfortable, you know, there's, there's also truly welcome, there's also valued. Um, so could you talk a little bit about when you arrived, like how, how did you come to understand like work is being done here um, and this, this is going to be a community that y- you can build on? You know, my school is
1: quite large. There are, are at this point, five different buildings. And we stretch from early years all the way up to high school and a boarding school. So I don't always get to see the the groundwork. And actually, the teachers who are doing a lot of this work are in the secondary program. So I miss a lot of it. Um, But walking into the school, there were, you know, pride flags. This school is for everyone. And that is great. And it left me with a lot of feeling, yes, and. What does that mean for my experience or these children's experience in the primary? And I think that is a process that we are going through right now. Um, Again, another shout out to Christina, who's been on this podcast a few times, always sends whole school emails inviting, whether it's to an affinity group and, you know, just open invitation for teachers who do identify within LGBTQ plus community that there is an affinity group out there.
0: Um, and also resources she also shares, as well as updates about the GSA. You know, you mentioned something that is really important there in terms of when she's sending out those emails, it's not just to the secondary, it's not just to the middle school, it is to the whole school. And, you know, again, that kind of gets into my second question, because I do think that sometimes folks assume, oh, this work doesn't happen in the EY. And I love that you pointed out, we're constantly having conversations about families, you know. So that is a, a core concept. Of course, that's an opportunity um, to have conversations about LGBTQ plus inclusion. Um, and I, you know, I'm often asked about children's literature and, and picture books. Um, you know, I, I try to do my best to sort of keep up on on what's coming out because I feel like the market is starting to really do much better with representation. Um, And I'm kind of always nudging people, like, ask your local library to have the book if they don't, um, you know, because that's another way that we can support these authors. Uh, And and I I think sometimes when we're talking about professional development libraries, I've said this before on the show, get those children's books and those pictures picture books that again are telling stories about family doesn't have to look a certain way. Love doesn't have to look a certain way. Identity doesn't have to mean a certain thing. Um, have those books on, on your, your professional development library shelves as well, because they do start really meaningful conversations, um, and I'm wondering if if you might want to, you know, I think EY teachers, of course, are always great experts in, in children's lit. And I'm wondering if you might just want to kind of shout out a few resources that you have found to be particularly useful or powerful. I do. I actually have a lot of shout outs right now. Yay. <laughs> um, I'm going to go on mute and just sip my tea and, and enjoy <laughs> then. Go ahead.
1: Uh, but I do want to actually get back to what you said. So I'm pausing for a second on that, what you said about documentation and how Does that help me um, or has it led to any more forward learning and inclusion? And I do want to say that, you know, when I came to the school, we, for my last school, we did a lot of family photos and this is a nice, lots of early childhood programs are doing this more and more as like a staple beginning of the year, which is wonderful to see. And so one of my colleagues last year put up family photos. It was great, this is a wonderful idea. And in her classroom, there is a family that has two mothers and I did not know that and I remember going into her classroom because it was the designated restroom and I was putting my a student asleep in her classroom and I looked behind me and I saw this family photo of two mothers and I don't know moving to Germany during a pandemic I hadn't I learned lots of things that sometimes you forget about yourself or didn't really don't face all the time and my heart stopped and I saw myself in that photo you know putting this child to sleep and that documentation really hit me personally because I thought, yes, like this is a possibility for me. And I would want my child to feel safe and comfortable. And I want to be proud of whoever I'm married to. And I want to that to be honored and celebrated. So it really struck me <laughs> at that moment. And I, I also got the gears turning of, well, how can we, you know, start making this more constructive in our early childhood program of celebrating families? Um, within the queer community so there is that another part two of that response but as for books i'm glad you said shout out to libraries because book curators are awesome um some of the books that i'm going to list are just ones that i've read in my classroom that have had great feedback and there are plenty and plenty more out there but i'm going to try to keep the list a bit concise Um, And I only, you know, also on that note, uh, another colleague at my school, Bayakoja, another shout out, has created a great resource for us, just collecting the LGBTQI plus books that she uses in her units of inquiry and when and why and kind of the description and student feedback. Um, So on that note, some books that I have found really helpful, um, you know, Just talking about family, whether it's you're doing an All About Me or Who We Are unit is one called Mommy, Mama and Me by Leslie Newman. Um, She also makes another kind of sequel called Daddy, Papa and Me. And those are nice just showing those different types of family structures. Another one that has great illustrations that I have found really captures young children's attention is um, called Love Makes a Family by Sophie Beer. Which is one and another silly one that I just encountered the other day is called The Pirate Moms by Jody Lancet Grant. And, you know, thinking about that as well, these are all ones of like people characters, but children also love animals. And it's also another part to be able to identify with animals and also respect them as part of our world. And there is, you know, a very famous book called Tango Makes Three um, by Justin Richardson. And it's about penguins um, and these two dad penguins who want to start a family, but they need an egg from another, you know, and I also thought that this book, while it is based in, you know, two dads and understanding that family, I think families who also use donor eggs or also have a, had adoption, that is also another great resource for those all families. And that could be something where children are coming from those different backgrounds can actually find similarities with each other and commonalities. And so that is something that I have reflected on. Um, another book I think we'll talk a little bit more about if we talk about pride, but it's called This Day in June by Gail E. Pittman. And it is awesome. <laughs> it just talks about pride. and the, I like the books. It's very sing-songy and rhymey, which is great for pre-K. And uh, the beginning of the book talks a lot about the feelings one might feel at pride. And that is all early childhood is not just what is, but how does it feel? And so tapping into that, I find is very, you know, um, alluring for children and, and it makes that day even more special because then they can relate with the characters. Um, going into kind of gender and expression. Um, another famous one is Pink is for Boys by Rob Perlman. And there's also Yulian is a Mermaid by Jessica Love. So these are, you know, kind of breaking down traditional roles and what does it mean to express yourself? And there is another book. that's not people-based, but it's a crayon called Red, a crayon story about a blue crayon named Red um, and what that character goes through. And I think that's also great. You know, it can mirror so many different things that a child is going through. Perhaps a child is being exposed to different types of identity and expression. Maybe they're struggling with something similar to this. It also could just be, you know, we often find in international schools, children who are displaced from their home countries and are somewhere else where they are not sure where they belong and how do they be themselves, right? And so I think that's kind of going back to Tango Makes Three, also finding overlapping themes, right? It doesn't always have to be singled out. This is, you know, just about queerness or this is just about gender expression, right? This could just be I am a person, and I am going through this. And how can we relate to each other? I think having all of the different options are important. Um, and but to get, you know, representation is also important. So a book called "I Am Jazz," um, based off Jazz Jennings' own life, and written with Jessica Herthal, is about a transgendered child. And so that's, you know, again, as I said, the spectrum, large and small. Something that's a little bit more conceptual, and something that's always very true to the point is great. And there is a book that I came across this summer at Porter Square Books, thank you, called What Are Your Words? Um, A book about pronouns by Catherine Locke. And it's a very wonderful book. It's not the most lyrical for young children. However, sometimes picture books are not just for children, they're also for the grownups in their lives. And I find it very simple and to the point and direct and opening and inviting. And I think that is a great resource to have. Um, And just to kind of And on this note that it doesn't always have to be this book is just for understanding LGBTQ plus families, right? Can LGBT characters also just be characters that doesn't always have to talk about what makes them different, right? Can they just be the main characters? And so there is a book called Harriet Gets Carried Away. And the main character, Harriet, she has two dads, But the story isn't about two dads. It's just Harry gets carried away with big ideas and two dads are just a part of it. And so that's also wonderful to have. Um, There's also another good book that I use in early childhood. It sounds a bit young, but I have multilingual learners. So sometimes board books are like simple ABC books are great just so they can learn some introductory vocabulary. And there is one by Barefoot Books called Baby's First Words. Spoon is in there, hat is in there, but you know, the babies parents are also two fathers. And that's just another form of inclusion in a way that is just natural because it is.
0: Yeah. And I'm so glad that you <laughs> that you brought that up because I, I I sort of think that's one of the things that, um, you know, we want to be careful not to otherize with, you know, trying to bring books in to be inclusive. So, um, uh, you know, I, I know sometimes I I will hear teachers say things like, oh, you know, yeah, we're going to get those books out in June for Pride Month. And it's sort of like, you know, what about the rest of the year? Uh, You know, especially as you were saying in in early years, you're, uh, you know, you're having such important conversations about family really right from the start of the year. So thank you so much for that list. And I completely agree, you know, that book, um, What Are Your Words? When I think about um, books that could, should be, could be, should be on our professional development library shelves, that's a wonderful example, um, because I know sometimes people feel this tension of, oh, I haven't asked someone for their pronouns before. I'm not, you know, I feel uncertain in that conversation. And, you know, in terms of a, a great guide, I just, I think I love what that book has done. It's it's definitely been one of my favorites. And, and Chelsea, that list that you've given to us, <laughs> um, you know, it's, no, but it's, it's fantastic. And, you know, I would recommend to anybody listening, if your library doesn't have it, request it. If you are a Goodreads, Uh, user, you know, I think it's also great to be, you know, adding those to our digital shelves as well. The number of times I'll have someone say like, oh, you know, I came across that book because I saw that you had, you know, put it on your want to read Goodreads shelf. Um, I I just think sometimes the publishing industry doesn't do enough, um, you know, to amplify some of those books and and we can help them out. I also think it's important to share with families what books you are reading, Um,
1: in, if you do a seesaw or a newsletter or whatever your correspondence is, and it doesn't have to be always again otherizing, like we are talking specifically about this, and this is the book that you can use to address it. Sometimes I just post, we read this book about families. Here are some of the student insights what they had to say. It was a really wonderful time, and tried to constructively promote these literature, these
0: pieces of resources. Yes, that's yeah that that transparency piece, and I think sometimes also Chelsea, I'd imagine for families who are thinking. <gasps> When I was growing up, you know, we, we never read a book like that. What would that conversation have been like, um, you know, for you to reiterate? It was a conversation like, uh, you know, almost any other book that we had. It wasn't, um, you know, I love that you pointed out earlier. Sometimes I know people think if we're talking about LGBTQ plus inclusion or identity, they think we're talking about sexual intercourse, which we're not. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think you kind of sharing that, what was the conversation Like, I'd imagine Um, that's really, really useful for parents and caretakers. Um, Chelsea, you know, research tells us young learners they're not immune to bias. uh, And in fact, actually, many of our biases start at a very early age. So I'm wondering what it might look like for you to facilitate uh, learning with an intention, perhaps, I'm, I'm guessing, to disrupt bias, knowing the work that you do. Um, I'm wondering if you might just walk us through what that might look or sound like, or just tell me, no, Tricia, you're wrong. That's not what I'm doing.
1: No, I'm so excited because, <laughs> um, you know, in early childhood, we say that, or we should say everyone <laughs> that learning is done through play and play is joyous. So this is, I'm excited to talk about play. And, you know, when you hear disrupting bias, it could sound a bit, uh-oh, am I doing something that is counter to my school? Will I get in trouble? And I often like to think in this time, okay, reflect on your school mission. And I think a lot of your listeners might be with an international education, so most likely IB. And just going back to what the IB's you know, first core mission is, is to develop inquiring, knowledgeable, caring young people, create a better and more peaceful world through education that builds intercultural understanding and respect, right? So, inquiring knowledgeable peaceful respect these would jump out to me and that's what inclusion learning is all about um, i also in my own practice in philosophy as well as i'm able to do it at my current school we have a you know reggio emilia influence and reggio emilia is has a strong foothold in social advocacy and communities coming together and representing children and families you know as citizens who have needs and ideas and can be a part of these conversations so When I think about disrupting bias, I think, hmm, does this match my mission? Yes. (laughs) But is it always so easy at the beginning? Not always. (laughs) But, you know, it's to provide a window and to be flexible and to invite questions and provide multiple opportunities, um, just any way that you as an early childhood teacher would design a sensory table, right? You are all these different things that you can strengthen those fine motor skills and those hand muscles later on for writing, right? Later on for when they're writing an essay about this, we're doing the same thing through play, right? We're providing opportunities, strengthening those muscles so they can use that foundation in those tools later on in life and for the rest of their lives. So we hope, right? And so play is powerful for children when it comes to you know, anti-bias learning in general, right? You're doing it through play, we're not indoctrinating anyone. Um, You know, it's a key to learning. And when enriching learning is done through play, it develops skills with inquiry and expression and experimentation, right, which is great and teamwork. And so we already talked a lot about books and resources, which is number one first, a nice early childhood classroom should be stocked up on books. I also think placement of books is important. So if you are learning about who we are, and you have your family photos up on the back, perhaps also stationing a book. has a different type of family it could be one of the books that we listed it could be another one that you found through your library just stationing it next to a provocation an invitation if you will so the children can make those connections right or they might look through it and then make connections with what they're seeing or kind of the other way around you never know the best part about learning with young learners is to step back and to observe what is going on um also to use books right in an early childhood you know learning there is a department usually right so is there a shared space where you have like a book stand or not not just for pride month, right? But all year long is there a shared, this is my classroom's recommendation. And you kind of put that out there to invite other children to read. I often like to bring, and my other colleagues as well, books out to the playground, because sometimes kids just want to sit and read in the sun, which is a beautiful thing to do. And just diversifying that book box, if you will. So I think that's a, you know, a great way to do that. Um, Another part that, Try to disrupt biases in songs. So I'm often just thinking, how can we just get creative? And the big thing that sticks out to me is just because something always was doesn't need, mean it needs to be. Right? So it's kind of breaking down those traditional barriers. And there's um, a great song I learned in Japan when I was teaching there for some time about a caterpillar family eating its way through a giant cabbage. And you use finger play and you go through every finger is like, baby, brother sister, mommy, daddy, right? These are the characters. And so when I do this song with my kids, I might do it the usual way first, but then definitely the second time. Okay. So how is this caterpillar family? Is it mommy and mommy today? Is it daddy and daddy? Is it just mommy, just daddy, grandma, you know, just exploring different types of family structures. And it does. Oh, there's no mommy, mommy, caterpillar. Why not? You know, you can have that conversation with your young learners, or if you do have your library well-stocked and these are already a part of their everyday conversations and experiences, that kind of song transition doesn't sound stressful to them. Oh, okay, yeah, we can do this one. So I think that's important. It's just where you can tweak it, why not? Um, another one of kind of tweaking things and changing them is a great a famous game called, what time is it, Mr. Wolf? And the kids ask, they, the kids all stand at one side And one child or the teacher stands at one side and they say, what time is it, Mr. Wolf? And they count one o'clock, one step, right? So whatever many, what clock, what time it is, they take those steps, right? And I like to use myself as the example, right? Because I am the adult and I want to model this, right? I often say, I don't want to be a Mr. Wolf or a Mrs. Wolf. I don't feel that I'm Mr. or Miss. I just want to be teacher Wolf or flower Wolf or whatever it is that day. And inviting the students to play with that. Do you want to be Mr. Wolf or Miss Wolf or neither Wolf or both Mr. and Mrs. Wolf? And the conversation can get pretty enlightening at the time. And after a while too, it's just no big deal. Oh, okay. So that's a safe way, right? To experiment with that. Um, another way, you know, we've talked about this in the podcast that I was on before is also understanding your environment, right? In early childhood, we construct our environments very purposely with our different centers. So if you notice, all of the boys or children who identify as boys are in this one area and the children who identify as girls are in this one area. What can you do to set up to kind of mix that? Okay, can I put, you know, something traditional that's really popular with young boys is block building and trains. How can I merge that with another activity or put it after Another activity. So they have to go through this one center in order to get to that destination, right? You're just trying to, again, provide opportunities and provocations for them, as well as in those spaces, right? So if you're kind of enticing them with a traumatic play center, and they're going in and, you know, can you dress up as this character? Well, I can't dress up as this character because I'm a boy or I'm a girl. And then inviting yourself in that play. Right. And having those conversations with them as they are happening. It often happens too if young children, when they play family, there's all always the fight. I'm the mommy. No, you can't be the mommy. I want to be the mommy. The real brain explosion is, you know, why can't there just be two mommies? Oh, okay. You know, and then having that dialogue from there. So that's another um, fun one. And You know, another thing is also representation. So, this is kind of leading a bit away from play, but what does your classroom look like, right? Are your families represented? Um, Do those other families have an opportunity right now in Corona? It's very challenging to see in some way and be shared with in some way. What are the other families in your classroom? Um, Do you have the progress flag in your classroom and why? If you do have the progress flag in your classroom, are you or it's in your school? Are you? checking in with yourself as a teacher, right? Am I providing opportunities that support the values that this represents? Um, and I have kind of a little bit of another long antidote, but we are doing an activity called, you know, living things, or right? MPYP. And I like to not tell my students often what the title of the inquiry is. I like to set up tables and have them try to figure it out. It keeps them busier a lot longer. <laughs> and so we are doing living things and they're trying to figure out What are we learning? What is this? So we're making a list. We're learning about bees. We're learning about this. And one of the topics they came up with is families. We're learning about families. And so as I'm writing down their ideas and visuals are very important for this age, not only just because they're young, but multilingual children, I'm getting pictures for them, right? So they said bees, get a picture of a bee. They said rainbows, picture of a rainbow. They said families. And then as I'm doing my Google search, I'm very deliberate. How? What photo will I use for a family to use that in you know in collaboration with conversations with the children, and I will share that again with families on the newsletter. So it says children are talking about families. Here's a picture of a family. It might be different than what they're usually used to. So
0: those are kind of different ways how I incorporate it into the classroom. I love that Chelsea because I I feel like (laughs) what I'm what I'm hearing there is sort of what it means is just being open to possibilities and to be really valuing creativity before compliance. And, you know, I, I as I reflect on even my own schooling, I feel like so much of it was about being compliant, right? Mm-hmm. About this has to fit here. This has to be done in this way. Just because. Um, and and I, I love that you, you know, you you even referenced the the question several times, this idea of just asking why not. And just asking why Um, and being comfortable, sort of, with the open endedness of that, which, you know, I know we talk all the time about inquiry and, you know, curiosity is important. Um, And I I really do think it's important as an educator every once in a while, no matter what age group you work with, if it's adults, to really check in and, and ask yourself, you know, what were the opportunities that I provided for genuine curiosity? And, What might be be some of the opportunities that I shut it down?
1: Yeah. I also think it's important, right, that the weight always isn't on teachers. We carry so much and we do so much and we play so many roles, right? So part of this disrupting, you know, bias thinking is also where does your leadership and admin team support you in this, right? I, I mentioned this before. If there is a pride flag, is it just for tokenism or is it really something important to the school. And I think that is important to understand because marginalized folks could make the mistake of coming out or saying something personal in a space that is not actually safe for them or comfortable for them. And I think we have to also think about that setup even before the children are there. Um, I also think it's important to think about, you know, in international schooling, I find that we come across this, that there are families from countries where being LGBTQI plus is punishable legally right or it's not okay or it's culturally misunderstood and of course we do not want to say this family is coming from this country so therefore they have this viewpoint right that's just more (laughs) bias that we're putting in we don't want to but before we do lessons like this what is the mission statement of the school is there a liaison a cultural or language liaison that is already proactive at the beginning of the school year, that talks with some families, just in general, right? And without any finger pointing, this is what it's like living in this country. It might be different than your country. Here are some topics, right? Because in my experience, I have seen some unfortunate things around LGBTQI plus inclusion, right? I have seen families not want their child to come to school anymore. They might have been punished verbally or physically, because they're bringing these ideas home. And if we're talking about safety and comfortability for students in the classroom, we have to make sure that those ideas are going home also in the same manner, right? And do those families have resources if they're confronted with something challenging? Um, Yeah, I just wanted to throw that out there because it is a a big piece that I'm thinking about lately and how I navigate this.
0: Yeah. And, you know, again, just remembering that families, you know, the families are a part of your your school, your institution, and to ensure that you're including them. And I, I love that you also point out, um, you know, school leaders, we need you in this work. So if the flag is there, it's wonderful when school leaders actually are willing to make public statements about why. Um, because I know sometimes the assumption might be uh, that the flag is just there, as you said, you know, as, as it's tokenistic thing. So it's always great, I think, when school leaders are willing to sort of go on the record or, or visit in classrooms with students or, you know, just virtually even speak to, here's what this means to me. Um, and I know that there are some school leaders doing that work, um, but uh, again, I, I just think that's a piece that as an educator, you're right, you know, I, we, we look to them for that guidance and so do the students so do the families. Um, Chelsea, I am coming off of a weekend at Learning Too. There was a virtual event in Europe and I was talking to a few folks about um, a website that I'll be talking about a little bit more and more as the year goes on. It's called queerwisdom.com. And basically it's a a space that um, luckily Pride and and Less Prejudice has partnered with me on this. We really just wanted to create a free space for educators like yourselves, uh, who have, you know, great wisdom to come and share in terms of thinking about the planning of Pride 2022. Um, you know, in conversation with others last year, I just kept noticing that I was hearing this refrain of, oh, you know, we ran out of time. So we didn't really do very much for Pride. And that's something that I feel like I've heard echoed year after year. And it just has me thinking a little bit about how. A, I'm a big believer that pride is something that needs to be sustained all year, but I also do think we have so much to learn from one another, right? Different things have happened at different schools. And I just think when we have a place and a space to go and and learn from one another, um, it's a wonderful thing. (laughs) So I'm wondering, um, you know, I know that you have some expertise in thinking about pride and what it can mean at a school and and just sort of, you know, ideas around bringing it to life. Uh, I'm wondering if you might just sort of share some of your past experiences with pride or what pride month has meant to you. Ooh, that's a big one. <laughs> it's a giant question. I'm sorry. That was like um, five <laughs> questions in one. It is. I mean,
1: I'm my, again, my response is going to be both my personal response and my teacher response. And my personal response is that pride has always been this, you know, I lived in Japan for almost 10 years um, and I moved quite young when I was 19 and at that time, it was not so accessible. Right. And so pride, when I looked on social media, it's like this dangled day in front of me where I always was longing to be a part of, but couldn't yet. Right. And I'm also, again, like I said, I'm bisexual. So by erasure is a huge thing and you never feel like you belong, or I have felt like I've never belonged in one category or the other. And do I even get to go and celebrate? Right. Which is sad. So You know, pride for me, first and foremost, means tackling my own internalized queer phobia and, you know, getting rid of that shame and finding community in which I can be reflected in and have reflection about how we have come to this point and where can we go forwards. And so that's, for me personally, um, as a teacher, it wasn't until around 2018 that when I was interning at a school in Boston that a child had brought up, a third grade child had brought up what about pride, right, and I know Boston is a very progressive community, so this conversation was a little bit more accepted, but they said, what about pride, it's at the, it's like the Saturday at the end of school, like, let's go, and all the teachers thought, yes, let's go, and that was the first time for me, even kind of edging out of, that was one of the first years edging out of my own internalized biphobia, and it was walking with students and families, and it was, community and it was love and it was accepting i thought oh yes like this does deserve a place in education and children are able to be a part of the conversation because a child had started this conversation um so there's that um last year so it's been a bit tricky with corona right but so so there's a bit of a gap um but last year in our department in the early childhood department me and some colleagues were talking and we thought we you were talking about pride or what do we want to do at the last week of school? And so in my own reflection of this, I do wish it was longer than, you know, just June. Um, But sometimes you get an idea and you just run for it, right? And why not take the action? And so we decided to have a week long, the last week of school, Pride Week. And Monday through Thursday, we're going to be about creating whatever it is we wanted to create for Pride. And Friday would have been our own Pride Parade. And that was really wonderful. I mean, again, that there's ups and downs to both, um, you know, to this situation. So, you know, we were thinking about, so this was about a week beforehand and we have to get out resources, share resources and books. And that was pretty much it that we did the week before our week-long Pride event. And we made collaborative art pieces of the progress flag, as well as, you know, with my own students, we created our own skin tone paints. And we just repurposed that because it's the end of the year to make shades of love. And so, you know, using the progress flag in just different ways and then just the colors they represent, but also learning about what those colors represent. And so one morning we all decided to take on different types of simple crafts and take on different colors from the progress flag and have them stationed up in our classroom. So there was, you know, and then when all the, ooh, I might not be explaining this so clearly. So all the children, we made like a huge rainbow and added on extra, extra, extra like, ribbons onto it. And their goal was to go to all the different classrooms and try to fill in each color and get the whole rainbow. And again, in retrospect, some classes, again, without much forethought is just, okay, yeah, here's some blue, whatever, whatever, you can put the blue on here, right? But for me, I was thinking, oh no, um, the yellow, yellow means harmony. What does this mean? How can I set this provocation in a book that represents that? And what's in there in the morning of like trying to send my colleagues like, okay, here's some great songs, right? So there was a bit, you know, slapdash at some points, however great for reflection, right? So we just had some community involvement where they could create that. We had collaborative posters that we put out in the playground. So for the whole week they were just working on it little by little with each other. Um, we did something where I call we love bomb the school and we took chalk and chalk paint and just had messages of love all over the front of the campus. And this, you know, this collaborative work and that love bombing set up for the next day, which was the Friday. And the children had got face paint and they had made tie dye T-shirts with the art teachers. And then we went on a parade and it was a bit deliberately planned <laughs> that all the high school teachers and the students would be outside at this pavilion having lunch. And we marched up with our music and our bubbles and all of our, you know, exciting rainbow-tasticness and marched around these high school students, right? However, the part is that we don't want it to be too gimmicky, right? And we're trying to catch up. So why are we doing pride? So, again, another little... You know, okay, okay, like what do we do? I watched a lot of Sailor Moon growing up for more reasons than one I found out later in life, but you know, lots of hand movements and dancing were a big thing, so I taught the kids, you know, we're telling our school, which is a big sentence for little kids. We're telling our school, but that's important for me that they know that you can question your institutions, right? And that's what pride is about. So when you think about pride is a parade and it's fun and you know, can children be involved in this? First and foremost, yes, but it's not just about that. To have fun with that is just a, you know, a privileged experience, which we can go into later, but pride is action, right? So I want, and I, children can get that simple understanding. We're telling our school something, right? And um, I wish all the viewers could see this, but I'll try to act it out for you. It's stop. And we stuck our hands out as a, you know, stop sign and think, pointing to our heads, did a little jazzy movement to think about, Love and we practice that. We're telling our school to stop and think about love. We practice that a few times, and that is why we are doing this. And we just created a ruckus and then encased all of the high schoolers that they were sitting very surprised in this pavilion and just shouted that at them a few times and invited them to sing and dance with us and also get involved in some collaborative art, which was wonderful because some of the high school and middle school students came up to us and said, I And queer, I don't feel safe. Or that's when some teachers came up to me and said, I identify as this, but I don't feel okay being out. Or older students are engaging with young children in this civic action and these young children, whether they understand deeply or not about advocacy, they know that they can be a part of something with all different ages to tell their institution something, right? That kind of core value of what's going on for pride. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Kelsey, you know, and I think you had mentioned earlier, like we reflect on our mission statement. We think about our school values. And I, I think so often in that sort of language, we see things like, you know, uh, wanting students to be change makers in their community. And I feel like what you described embody that perfectly, just that notion that yes, you can speak up to your institutions, um, I worry, again, that schools teach that out of students rather than giving them opportunities to really enact it, which is what that pride event sounds to me like it it did, which is beautiful. But the other thing there that just sounds so valuable, um, you know, I'm I'm doing my master's in educational leadership right now. So quantitative, qualitative research, like just, uh, you know, I'm hearing those words in my in my sleep. And, you know, I I know that schools sometimes are trying to do more surveys and more panels to invite students to share their experiences in terms of how safe, how inclusive they feel their school is. And that's, you know, we need to do that. That's fine. But I also think, you know, you mentioned love bomb. I feel like we Google survey bomb students all the time. And, uh, you know, I, I know that students are kind of over that. And I love that what you're showing is sort of this Creative provocation that's going to invite authentic, genuine response. And just in terms of like a method to start a conversation that is not a survey, that is so beautiful. That is so meaningful. Um, and, you know, I, I wonder how many students and members of staff shared those thoughts, and they might not have shared that in a survey. They might not have wanted to have sat on a panel. So I, I think any school leaders who might be listening and they're thinking, you know, I would love to know more how folks are feeling and thinking about this, having art as a pathway to start that conversation. Um, that's just so, so, so powerful. I'm, I'm really glad that you shared that. Some
1: families who are, you know, same-sex families came and that was really meaningful. Um the activism sparks joy in others, right? That's what we wanted. That's the whole root of pride is that it's action and that these children had a a fun welcoming experience with that Um, and teachers were surprised, right? The teachers who had all these challenges and questions were also surprised and it brought us closer together, right? And families were honored and everyone was invited. So in the end, it, it was great. But I think if you are going to pursue an event like this, we need to make time to reflect on it? And what does it mean to be able
0: to do it? Part of why I want to do this episode now in October is because it's wonderful to just sort of have that on the back burner Mm -hmm. now, um, rather than, you know, of course, June being the, the last month of school for most of us also stressful and we're tired. So, you know, if you can let some of those conversations and questions percolate now, rather than, oh gosh, you know, it's June 1st already. And I, I don't know about you, but I feel like every educator that I'm talking to right now, the fatigue that is there, you know, for multiple reasons, that's a whole nother podcast episode, um, is hard. And I, I do think for educators everywhere who are invested in this kind of work, it was not easy, um, without the global pandemic, it's harder now. And it's harder, I think now, you know, that we're deeper into the pandemic, and I'm wondering, you know, what are you thinking in terms of just sustaining your own wellness, um, you, you know, making sure that um, I, I think teacher burnout, mm-hmm. we've got to be extra careful with it this year. Um, and I think for folks like you who are doing that additional layer of emotional labor, it's, it's even harder. So um, do you have any thoughts on that or just sort of any any kind of boundaries that you're hoping to, to kind of maintain or initiate.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I talked on the last
0: podcast about roller
1: skates and making sure I do that, but definitely just having a hobby that is not school that is not learning. (laughs) That is just for myself. And, you know, I think part of it is every month I make sure, and I have the ability to be able to do this, which I'm grateful for. I book out a whole weekend just at a campsite You know, if I can visit somewhere else and do a little bit of glamping, whatever it is where I am just removing myself from where I live, taking a train ride with a book and a coffee and I am out, no phone or anything. And I, maybe I'm doing this because Germany can get quite crowded easily, but I just book it, you know, months in advance and I have no choice. I've already paid. I have to go. And, you know, it comes in really good times, actually, where I'm feeling overwhelmed and I'm like, oh, I know I'm going to have a hundred kilometer bike ride this weekend. Really needed that. Thank you. So a little presence to myself in the future. Um, My current co-teacher right now is also helping me with this. We're doing it together at the end of the school day. I mean, there's so many things you want to do in your classroom, especially when you're a homeroom teacher and in early childhood classroom, it's like managing a home, right? There's so many things you need to clean and organize and set up and, you know, rest is resistance at one point, right? So we, it gets to a point where we know that we cannot overwork unpaid anymore after this time, we go in, we look out the windows, we take a deep breath and breathe out and just say goodbye at the door, we just let go. And she's been really wonderful in, in helping me with this process of just letting go. You can't be superwoman all the time. And so that's a nice thing to do just daily. Um, and then another thing, you know, kind of similar to what I talked about with roller skates before is that I'm connecting with communities where I feel represented, right? So if I'm feeling that doing career advocacy is not so respected maybe in my personal life or with my colleagues all the time, 100%, I need to ensure that I have my cup also being filled, right? That my bucket is also getting that. And so, am I involved in communities outside of school that are, you know, perhaps queer communities or Flinta communities that are doing other hobbies and things that I enjoy? So, that's something that I'm maintaining.
0: That's great, Chelsea. And I, uh, you know, again, I, I really, I appreciate what you said there about having a colleague kind of in on it with you because that's what I have found to be the most useful is like you have somebody who helps you hold yourself accountable to these things because it's it's so easy. I find, you know, our identity as educators, I think is tied up in how much we care, how much we love learning. So that kind of overlap over, you know, I'm, I'm an educator- And that's at the core of who I am is kind of a dangerous thing sometimes because if we're not doing that recharging, um, it's hard to do the emotional labor that is being in front of a group of children um, and navigating. You know, I I think one thing that's so unique about working in a school is you have so many different layers of folks you work with, right? you know I, I don't know somebody can can write into the podcast and let me know if I'm wrong. but I, I think in most other jobs, even just the hierarchy of who is your boss is more straightforward. Um, mm-hmm. But if you're working in a school, there's so many other people's needs um, that factor into what's going on within your own day. Um, so I, I just think that's that's really brilliant that you've got you' kind of have a colleague who's gonna, you know, also be that person with you at the end of the day to remind you, um, because it's, it's hard to keep to that stuff on our own sometimes. So thank you so much for sharing that. And Chelsea, thank you for giving up some of your time for the podcast again. Um, it was really great to, you know, talk about so many different things on this episode. So thank you again for the time, the energy, the effort. Um, and, uh, I hope that, uh, this coming weekend, you've got some roller skating time or some camping time or some downtime again, maybe camping and roller skating happen together. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Thank you.